0: Hello, I'm Greg Bodker, Deputy Chief with the Columbus Division of Police in Columbus, Ohio. In 2019, at the direction of Chief Tom Quinlan, our department embarked on several new projects. One of those projects was finding alternative methods to improve the solvability rate of cold cases. According to national research by the RAND Corporation, only about 1 in 20 cold cases results in an arrest and only 1 in 100 cold case investigations results in a conviction. While many factors play a role in these statistics, as a large metropolitan police department, we understand the value that the public plays in solving crimes and the potential that the public can play in increasing these solvability rates. We acknowledge that the lines of communication between law enforcement and the community are ever-evolving and technology has been a driving force in reshaping how we interact with each other. Cold case homicides are perhaps the most important cases that are investigated by law enforcement officers. For every homicide that remains unsolved, a family remains without answers, and potentially, a killer remains free. By changing how information is distributed regarding these cases, this project will allow those cases cold for so long to defrost with the hopes of delivering justice and bringing understanding to those that have desperately been searching for answers. With the cooperation of the officials involved in these cases, and more importantly, the support from the family members of the victims, we have created The Fifth Floor, the first Columbus Police Cold Case podcast. Please join us as we revisit our cold case files and search for the answers that will bring these cases to a close.
1: On the southeast corner of Long Street and Marconi Boulevard, in the center of downtown Columbus, Ohio, stands a gray eight-story building. On each side of the glass door entrance, atop the stairs, sits a granite-carved lion, a symbol of courage, strength, and perseverance within law enforcement. Each of the eighth floors on the inside house the sworn and civilian staff that make up the current generation of the Columbus Division of Police. On the 5th floor, a room of experienced detectives report for duty.
2: Floor 5.
1: Here are the offices of the Cold Case Homicide Unit. In a nearby secured office, case files containing reports dating back to the early 1900s fill boxes. Written summaries of the thousands of hours of investigative work by generations of detectives. Homicide cases that have since gone cold. In a nearby vacant office, in the center of the hustle of busy detectives, we set up shop. A place to discuss some of these cases in the hopes that by putting this content out in a new way, that someone out there will either remember something, or will have some new information that will help to solve these cases. We also hope to shed some light on what we do and how we do it, so that you, the listener, can get a better idea on how these cases are worked, and why and how sometimes they go cold.
0: Welcome to the Fifth Floor. I'm Greg Coleridge.
3: I'm Stephanie Lubell.
0: And I'm Greg Bodker. And we are only some of the voices that you will hear throughout this series. Together, we are all the officers, detectives, and police personnel that will guide you through these cases. You will also be hearing from former officers, family members, and other professionals that assist with these cases. It's important to note that throughout this series, Certain names may have been changed in an effort to help protect the privacy of those that are not the focus of any wrongdoing. However, in discussing some of the facts, certain content might not be deemed appropriate for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised.
3: Our first selected case occurred in the north side of Columbus, Ohio, on September 20th, 1982. This case has been actively worked since it occurred, and the sheer amount of work that has gone into this case is staggering. Our victim is 8-year-old Kelly Prosser, and we will try to tell you her story with the hope that someone out there can give us the information to solve this case and bring justice for Kelly and resolution to her family. Kelly's mother, Linda, has never stopped fighting for her daughter and for those that are responsible to be found, and our detectives have never stopped working on this case either. Detective Dana Kroom is the detective currently assigned to Kelly's case, and we will hear from him later. He's also going to update us on where the investigation is currently and how he goes about taking over a case when it gets assigned to him. Another reason we wanted to do this podcast is to remind the public, and more importantly, the suspects, that our department will never stop working on these cases. Just because they are considered cold doesn't mean that they are put away and forgotten about. Our detectives will never stop trying to solve these cases and find those responsible. We will never stop hunting for you, and we will find you.
0: On September twentieth, 1982, the day started like most other Monday morning school days. The gray and rainy sky prompted Kelly's mother, Linda, to include her blue reversible raincoat as a necessary accessory to the blue jeans and white and pink floral blouse that Kelly wore as her outfit that day. Kelly attended Indianola Alternative School, which is located on East 16th Avenue, just north of downtown Columbus, Ohio, near the Ohio State University. Kelly was in third grade, and by all accounts, she was described as a friendly and outgoing child. Kelly's sister, Christina, describes her sister.
4: Quite joyful, love to play and laugh. We used to dance to a song together. It was our song, and happy, Wanted to always chat with people and do new things. That summer, we spent a lot of time at the swimming pool. She would go, I would take her with me and my friends, and we would hang out at the swimming pool. And she, I remember the the day before, we went together to the store to look for some new barrettes and hair combs and that kind of thing. So she liked to do that. She loved art. She used to draw my mom pictures, and she would make macaroni creations. So that was something she liked to do a lot as well.
0: Linda, Kelly's mother, worked at The Ohio State University, which was only a few blocks away from where Kelly attended elementary school. Kelly had previously walked home from school with her siblings, but this year... Her older brother Keith had moved on to middle school. Kelly wanted to continue to walk home and discuss doing so with her mother. Kelly's mother, Linda, recalls those interactions. I
2: mean, I hesitated letting her um, walk to school by herself. And we talked about that before the school year started because she always had her siblings. Even though you know, like her sister went on, you know, to the next level. Then her brother went to middle school. Uh, she was used to, and she knew the rules, and she knew um, the way to get there and get back. So we talked about that beforehand because I was hesitant to let her do it by herself. And, you know, so she was relentless. So that's another word to describe her. Relentless that she was able to do this by herself. And so this was her trial run. Um, Of course, you know, you don't know that that trial run is going to bite you in the butt. But so she wanted to be independent and walk to school by herself and say hi along the way to friends that she knew in the shop windows. I mean, everybody knew, knew my kids. So I, you know, it didn't, while I was worried, I wasn't overly concerned. in it. what point do you say, you know, okay, you can or cannot do that?
0: Kelly's school teacher, Barbara Cleveland, described Kelly as a child that was curious about life and very helpful about cleaning up around the classroom. She said that her last afternoon in school, Kelly had watered all the plants in the classroom. Miss Cleveland described Kelly as an affectionate and outgoing young child. Miss Cleveland also shared that Kelly was extremely happy to have her new father and was pleased about her mother's new marriage. By all accounts, the 20th was just a normal day and there was nothing unusual that had occurred. Kelly didn't say anything to her teachers or to her friends about anyone bothering her or anything unusual.
5: On that Monday, September 20th, Kelly wanted to walk home from school here on 16th Avenue, and her mother agreed. They had planned a route for Kelly to walk, which would have took her down High Street. This was a route that Kelly was very familiar with, and High Street during that time of day was very busy, with lots of students and people around, so it should have been a safe area for Kelly to walk. Kelly left school like normal and started walking home. A shopkeeper near 18th Avenue told police that she saw a girl who she believed to be Kelly, looking in her store window between 3.30 p.m. and 4 p.m. on the 20th. The woman recalled seeing the child wearing a blue raincoat, and when she was shown a picture, identified the girl as Kelly Prosser. We looked up the address of the shop, and it would have been on Kelly's route home from school. The time frame stated by the woman at the shop also matched the time that Kelly would have been in the area. Kelly's previous routine of walking home would have her arriving either right before or right at 4 p.m., according to her new stepfather, Larry Garner. The missing persons report showed that Kelly wasn't reported missing until 6 p.m. This was because on that particular day, Kelly's mother had a dentist appointment. Kelly's sister Christina would usually get home first and either Christina or Larry would be home when Keith and Kelly returned home from school. So when Kelly didn't arrive home during the usual time, they simply assumed that Kelly was with their mother at the dentist. Kelly's sister Christina recounts that afternoon.
4: So I came home from school because I was the first one out of school. My dad had been laid off, so he was actually home. And then my brother came home from school, and... When my mom came home, um, she used to bring Kelly home with her every day. And so she... I mean, that's what I remember is her coming home with my mom. But that day, she came home, and she walked in the door, and my dad said, Where's Kelly? And she said, What do you mean, where's Kelly? And he said, I mean... Where's Kelly? And my mom said, well, isn't she here? And my dad said, no. And it kind of, from there, is a blur. They, She's supposed to be here. Well, she's not here. What do you mean she's not here? I'm saying she's not here. Isn't she with you? No, she's supposed to be with you. And then um, we didn't have a telephone in our house at the time. So my my mom went over to my grandma's, who lived right behind us, and Started making phone calls. They went up to the school and drove around. Um, they called the police, um, so they were they called more people. And um, I know they called like not just her school friends, but her teacher from school and um, all of our family members. I mean, just and then finally, I think it was like nine o'clock that night. Somebody came um, from the police department and talked to them.
3: And you have to remember that this was a time that was pre-cell phones and communication wasn't as easy as it is now. Linda immediately got into her car and drove over to the school to look for Kelly to see if she was playing and maybe lost track of time. Linda didn't locate Kelly, but she did see a Columbus police patrol wagon. Linda flagged down the officers and told them that Kelly was missing. The officers took down Kelly's information and spread it to other officers to start canvassing for her. The procedure at that time was for the reporting person, which would have been Linda, to call the missing report into the Juvenile Bureau. This was prior to having a missing persons bureau, so Linda went home to call in the report at 6 p.m. Officer Dodd in the Juvenile Bureau received the call and by 6.02 p.m. transmitted Kelly's description to the radio room to have it broadcast to all officers. The radio room confirmed that officers in the area already had the information and were searching for Kelly. By 9 o'clock, Kelly still had not been located. The information was again aired for patrol officers. Officer Dodd, who retired in 2008, recounts that call.
6: I was in the office working second steps, and so usually in the juvenile field back then, uh, one or two people stayed in the office in case patrol would bring somebody in that would have to be processed, or in case we had to take a missing person report, that kind of thing. So, as far as I can remember, I got a phone call um, from the mother, Kelly Prosser's mother, uh, to make this missing person's report, stating that she hadn't come home from school. And she was concerned, of course, you know, um, because of the age of the child, I'm thinking she was about eight. I'm thinking she was eight years old as, as a younger child, and of course that always you know raises concerns. Um, I took the report. and then after that, um, the patrol was notified and you know that was kind of my
3: my role
6: in that day.
0: Kelly's disappearance was taken very seriously by the officers involved in this case. Her story was released to the local news around 9 a.m. the next day. That would have been Tuesday morning. Tips came pouring in, and officers responded to check all of the tips. Officers were also sent to speak with Kelly's school teachers, her biological father, and other family members. Meanwhile, a command post was set up at a local precinct. On that Tuesday, numerous officers and about 30 community members began to search the area where Kelly was last seen and her route home. They also searched the river along the area of the Doddridge Street Bridge, since Kelly liked to play in and around water. Nothing resulted from this search, and it was ultimately called off when it got dark. What complicated this case from the very beginning was that a viable suspect was immediately identified and tips were called in about that specific suspect. For the purpose of this podcast... Names of all suspects have been changed. We'll call this suspect Calvin. He lived in the area and had a warrant for a sexual assault crime that had been filed from an incident that occurred on Sunday, September 19th, the day before Kelly went missing. Tips had been called in concerning this suspect. Officers also reported seeing Calvin in the area with a young girl that matched Kelly's description near the time that she went missing. I also saw that officers had taken a canine out to canvass in the neighborhood, and the dog walked up to Calvin's front door. When the handler called the dog back, the dog then tried to get in the back gate to Calvin's residence. Then it was discovered that Calvin had gone to West Virginia suddenly. Calvin's wife was very vague and wasn't sure about when he left, possibly Sunday night or Monday morning. She said that he was going to West Virginia because of an illness in the family, but didn't know who was ill or specifically where he was going. At the time, the police interviewed Calvin's daughter. She told the officers that her father had been in town with her until 5.30 p.m. on Monday the 20th, the day that Kelly went missing. All of this was apparently enough to get a search warrant for Calvin's residence, which turned up no traces of Kelly Prosser.
3: Leaving the state quickly and your wife not knowing where you are heading or when you left is very strange behavior. It's really no wonder detectives immediately focused on Calvin as a suspect in the abduction. The sexual crime warrant that had been filed against him, the victim in that case was a juvenile close to Kelly's age, and who actually officers believed at the time, according to a tip, probably knew Kelly. At the same time, lots of other tips about a variety of people were being phoned in, and officers were running down every lead. At 8.30 p.m. Tuesday night, a call came in from Lisa Richmond of Plain City, Ohio, which is about 30 minutes west of Columbus. Miss Richmond stated that her father, Charles, had found a blue raincoat on Tuesday morning on a road in rural Madison County, Ohio. Charles was a respected probate attorney in Madison County, who that morning was on his way to pick up his housekeeper who lived on A.W. Wilson Road. Officers responded to Madison County and met with Miss Richmond and Charles regarding the raincoat.
7: I was attending Clark State at the time, so I had left that morning to go to school and my dad, Charles Richmond, was going to Plain City to pick up their housekeeper, uh, Clara Plank. And on his way to her house, he noticed something in the middle of the road and kind of straddled it with his car, and it blew up behind him, and he thought it looked like a jacket or something. So when they came back down A.W. Wilson Road to go to 42, they stopped and Dad picked it up and Clara took a look at it and it appeared to be a child's raincoat so that night when I got home from school mom was getting ready to take Clara home and said you know ride along with me so I was in the back seat and when we got to Clara's house and Clara got out I got out to get in the front seat and I saw this blue plastic you know on the floor and asked Clara if it was hers and she had said no that Your dad found that this morning when he came down the road, and it looks like it's a kid's raincoat. So mom said, well, Clara, just take it in the house with you. Uh, Maybe one of your nieces can use it or whatever. And we just assumed that maybe some other kid was playing with another kid on the bus and threw their coat out the window. So on the way home, mom started telling me about this little girl that was missing out of Columbus that day, that she'd seen it on the news. And um, I said, do you know what this little girl was wearing? And she said, no. She couldn't even remember the name. Just remember hearing this little girl was taken, you know, after she got out of school. So I went down to the sheriff's department in London and asked if they had a description of the clothing. And I looked in the newspaper that they had there and it gave her a clothing description. And at the very last end of the paragraph, it said, might have been wearing a light and dark blue reversible raincoat. And I just, I I can't explain it. I just knew that this was her coat. So I went home and told Dad, and so I called Columbus Police that night, and they wanted to come out and meet us uh, to get the coat. And, of course, it was at Clara's house, so we met with the two detectives at McDonald's at 42 and 70 there in London, and then they followed us up to Clara's house to get the coat.
0: Lisa Richmond's father, Charles, showed officers where he had found the raincoat. Officers took that raincoat and met with Linda, Kelly's mother, at around 11.30 p.m. on Tuesday night. To the officer's surprise, Linda confirmed that the raincoat belonged to her daughter and that she had been wearing it the day she went missing.
2: They just said they had found a raincoat and wanted me to look at it um, to identify whether or not it was Kelly's. So until I got there, you know, I had no idea what I was walking into. They actually, that was another media fiasco. Um, they actually had to come and get me and take me to the fire station on Arcadia in Deming. And the firefighters actually had to form a line to keep them away from me. So I could go in and identify her raincoat. And that's when I knew she pretty much knew she was not coming back to us. It just just wasn't going to happen. I I was fairly
6: certain
0: of that. Officer Dodd recalls that interaction.
6: During the course of the investigation... They had found a raincoat, a little raincoat that apparently Kelly was wearing in her description, and I was charged with informing her of that detail, which was that was that was not fun to do because it pretty much meant that something bad had happened because the raincoat was found, I believe, in Madison County, and then it was in a rural area. And so that pretty much told everybody that this was not going to have a happy ending. You know, at least I was there for her to have somebody that kind of was there from the beginning. And I don't know, uh, you know, if that meant a lot or not, but it seemed like it did. And we cried. Yeah, it was a terrible time.
3: Officers, detectives, tracking dogs, they all went back to the area that the raincoat was located in Madison County, and they began a search. Lisa and Charles had also gone back to the area where Charles found the raincoat. So what was it like out
5: here? It's about the same?
7: Yeah, I drove down the road the other day, and it seems like there's less trees than what there was back then, um, up on this end of the road. And there's a few more farm drives, I think, than what there were.
1: Other than that, pretty much kind of the same.
7: Yeah, I think there's maybe a new house or so. But um, other than that, it's pretty much... But back then, the drive went back maybe two lengths of my car, if that. And then, the, you, I mean, you could tell that there'd been, like, tractors, you know, go further into the field there um, and it may be that way when there's corn or crops on here and they've just plowed everything up for now and see we stopped and we had stopped at the other two and the first one we got out walked around and then when we got out at the second one I just kind of stayed at the edge of the road and when we got here I told dad I said like another out of the car and he said what's the matter and I said I don't like this I'm scared and something's just not right, Dad. Well, he kind of took it to heart because of me saying what I did about the raincoat and then that being right. So, you know, we left.
0: The search was called off around 2.15 a.m. on Wednesday the 22nd because it was just too dark. The area they were searching was a country road surrounded by cornfields. That search resumed the next morning around 11 a.m. on the 22nd with the help of multiple agencies, tracking dogs, and the Columbus police helicopter. On Wednesday, September 22nd, at about 1.09 p.m., Ohio State Highway Patrol Trooper Bryant located a child's body several rows back in a cornfield. Kelly's mother Linda identified the body of the child as her daughter Kelly. Everyone at the scene was heartbroken. While homicide detectives were already involved, they officially ruled Kelly's death a homicide and formally took over the criminal case. Since Kelly had been abducted in Franklin County, the Columbus Division of Police kept the case instead of passing it on to the Madison County Sheriff's Office. This concludes the first segment of this cold case. Please join us for part two.